This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal advice. The transmission of information on this podcast is not intended to establish and receipt of such information does not establish or constitute an attorney-client relationship. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements. Welcome to another episode of Talking Pop Health. Today, I've got with me Rick Goddard from Lamaris. We're going to be talking about the effect of COVID on healthcare systems and the trends in population health for 2022. Uh, before we really jump in here, Rick, could you give a little bit about your background, how you got here, and what it is Lamaris does? Yeah, Eric, thanks for having me today. I'm excited to talk to you. I know we've been buddies for a long time, but Honestly, I've been excited to learn a little bit about what we can do collectively together in this really exciting time. Joining you today, I've come from a background of being a health system operator and executive by background. Uh, worked in several of the academic medical centers here in Chicago as we sit today in a very empty building. I'd say by training a consultant. So spent several years at a small company, uh, about 100 people, but uh, called the Camden Group at the time, which was uh, bought by GE Healthcare in 2015. But prior to that, uh, it was a company that was built for um, examining value-based care models uh, coming out after the Affordable Care Act. And it was an awesome time to be involved in that value-based care models that are being deployed right throughout of the Obama administrations uh, and the development of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. So really got my exposure and teeth uh, cut in that type of work, uh, managing anywhere from a value-based care bundle payment assessment and delivery to an accountable care organization deployment. And then lastly, running anywhere from financial valuations and fair market value assessments to strategic plans on the fee-for-service side. So fully knowing that that time, even in the early 2010s, was a value-based care kickoff, uh, kind of the reboot from the 90s, uh, it was a really a time where it's still a very heavy fee-for-service market. Uh, I like to think of the 2000s as the fee-for-service Wild West. and thinking through how they they were trying to curb that spend in 2010, it was an exciting time to be around that mix, curbing that very, very exponential growth in fee-for-service costs and expenditures. And so I took that and leveraged that opportunity at Camden to get back to a market that having essentially a market span of one of the largest ACOs in the U.S. in advocate healthcare, uh, I joined Advocate Physician Partners in 2015 at a heart of a time where Dr. Lee Sachs, who we both know, um, was leading a fantastic effort in driving and penetrating that uh, value-based care um, percent of payer mix in a market that was still full of uh, very expensive health systems and academic medical centers um, in effort to drive down the total cost of care in a heavily dense PPO market. So I uh, had an opportunity to work with Dr. Sachs, Mike Engelhart, Dana Gilbert, Don Calcagno, and others to really drive the management of that um, cost of care for well over a million li- value-based care lives. So my responsibilities of that was driven around overseeing the Medicare Shared Savings Program, 150,000 lives and um, their commercial ACO populations and their partnership with Blue Cross Blue Shield of Illinois. And it was a really exciting time to be a part of that success. Uh, we had achieved substantial savings uh, during that time, uh, which was a really good opportunity for the health system to buy into the value-based care model, given it did achieve significant savings, which really boosted the morale around, should we invest in this and should we continue to grow with it? I think Lee Sachs was a visionary to drive that a long time ago, and I know he was a member of your podcast, Eric. Uh, it was he, he was the type of person that thought ahead as that visionary that we could achieve this kind of success, and the organization benefited it over the long term. Uh, so getting that on-the-ground experience at Advocate was tremendous. 
where I decided to take that next and parlay it into how do we get the value-based care model and managing risk more scaled, faster, quicker. Uh, that was my um, turn to take on this position at Lumeris. Lumeris is a value-based care operating company, and we've helped several providers and um, payers in health systems, but um, our focus is health systems, to help grow that transition of fee-for-service-based uh, percent of revenue to a value-based care managed risk portfolio to help them tip the scales into becoming more owners of the premium dollar instead of being price takers in the long term. So my role at Lumeris has been a mix of marketing, corporate strategy, and product to help drive forward um, that penetration of risk-based contracts and management of the premium dollar within health systems. So it's been an exciting time. I've been here four years. Uh, there's a lot that has been done with this company the last several years, but I'm excited to talk to you about that and other topics today, Eric. So let's briefly touch on sort of the progression. Uh, we start off, we've got um, the Affordable Care Act, we've got ACOs, then we've got next-gen ACOs, we've got bundled payments, and now there's this thing called a DCE. How is this affecting the health systems? And we should probably cover what a DCE is. Yeah. Um, but how is this affecting health systems, both financially and, and strategically at this point, uh, given the progression and the fact, I'm going to steal your thunder a little bit here, there's there's more on the table for the systems, both upside and downside now than, than there used to be. Um, so could we just touch on that briefly? Yeah. Well, when you think about what health systems have invested today, in these programs, it in the Health Management Academy did a great study about a year or two ago on what the percent of revenue health systems have dedicated to operating budget to support value-based programs, and it's it's relatively light amount of their budget given the amount of revenue that folks could be potentially putting at risk. Now, I, I'd also say the percent of revenue dedicated to value-based programs is fairly light. So if you say, like, let's just say, health system that is today penetrated on, you know, an at-risk value-based contract, majority of the health systems in the U.S. are still below, well below 10% um, dedicated to risk-based programs. And despite, you know, we have significant lives invested through these Medicare shared savings programs and extra ACOs, still a significant portion of their Medicare payer mix is not necessarily covered under that. You know, folks could be still coming in from non-MSSP places that, you know, typically the leakage in a Medicare program is 50 to 70%, unless you have a really concentrated market. So if you think about how we drive interest in these programs and growing them, it's gonna take a, uh, what we call mindshare at Lumeris significantly more mindshare dedicated to a value-based care set of contracts as a percent of their total revenue. So I don't think the scales have tipped yet, Eric. And so when we talk about getting into shared savings program, next gen, uh, that is usually a health system's first entrance into value-based care programming because I like, again, it's one of the greater percentage of payer mix, there's more volume to manage to the premium amount puts the juice worth the squeeze to participate in these models. And so a lot of folks have started their journey in MSSP or next gen or pioneer. And if they haven't started any of those and <laughs> jumping to direct contracting, uh, that might be a bit of a uh, interesting strategy, but people are doing it because they see the writing on the wall and they see the opportunity that lies ahead. So we'll talk a little bit about these programs briefly. So MSSP introduced in 2012, it was a program that had three tracks. Track one was the most popular, upside only. Um, and that many organizations wanted to stay on that uh, past the original three-year contract to another three-year contract that was basically looking to maintain that upside only. And folks would balance uh, their percent of revenue and fee-for-service and balance the, the volume that would come associated with their at-risk populations. It was, it was a bit of a hedging play. Fast forwarded to risk trajectory of taking downside was accelerated 
um, say around 2016, the introduction of the next gen ACO program, folks that were saw that were willing to take downside two sided downside risk uh, were interested in going to that model um, from Pioneer, or they were they just realized track two and three was a bad deal, which it was. They moved into next gen, and that was a progressive time because organizations knew that they had more levers through the next gen program than they did at the time with MSSP. Uh, for downside risk management, and they went full bore in. And those that were in had success. They they achieved their own overall savings increase, um, but Medicare didn't win. Medicare lost. They lost the, uh, the cost battle. They didn't achieve saving net net actuarial uh, savings on that program. Hence, why it's going away. Fast forward to um, the tr- the Trump administration's. Um, roll out of the Pathways to Success program under SEMA Verma, um, which was a great redesign of the program because it accelerated folks' path to downside risk. No more hedging and staying in those upside-only models, looking to actually pre- having folks get more carrots, um, when I say carrots, incentives, to go to downside risk, namely applying more benefit structures to encourage management of that. And then also for beneficiaries, more reasons to um, engage a primary care provider in Medicare to not make it feel like you're under this managed care program where I'm restricted from access to my doctor, because that strictly is not the case. And so with these programs at CMS and Carrots that they've offered, they've offered the most progressive one yet in the direct contracting program. Now, this has been a highly controversial program since the change in administration I don't think um, consumer groups or several people within the industry fully understand the power that this program offers. It was very well articulated and um, well strategically put together to balance the strengths of Medicare Advantage and with the open access strengths of Medicare fee-for-service or traditional Medicare, as we call it, and was able to take many of those benefit designs and lesson learned to where, okay, folks can still go see wherever they want, but this program actually offers incentives to encourage beneficiaries to stay within a family of of providers, which is typically the biggest driver in management of managing an appropriate medical cost is um, benefit design. And folks can go out and network and their doctor has the incentive to churn and add more volume to the system and send them to a low quality sniff. We talk about lessons learned after a decade of this. This is a graduation of all those lessons learned. They, CMS listened and they tried to put together a program that balances beneficiary interests at the, at the top with trying to manage the Medicare trust fund depletion, which is, can come as soon as, I, I haven't seen the actuary of Office of Management of Budget release recently, but the most one that recent one that came out, Eric, was 2026 and we're ending 2021 and this is we're still having fights over where to put money for savings for Medicare that's a this is a dangerous time for all taxpayers um, as we see this change um, and we're, we're still fighting with um, political issues to essentially manage a bipartisan program in Medicare and Medicare Advantage to, to help beneficiaries and help the Medicare trust fund be sustainable. So I consider DC as being the most progressive, and no, no doubt, it's not perfect, but it, it, it has built and taken on all of the progression that we've taken the last 10 years of value-based care and built it into a Medicare program that can not only influence Medicare, but how networks operate within, in a given market and how it will affect commercial insurance going forward. So I don't think, you know, if we talk about much of Medicare today, I only talk about it because it's the, the most influencing insurance payer on the market and how it will interact with the other major payers and isolated markets. It will have an impact if that's one takeaway today. So if I'm the CEO of St. Elsewhere and I've got this nice little health system, I, you know, I've been doing okay, not great. Uh, COVID came, maybe that disrupted some volumes. And uh, I look around at the, at the market, and I'm in a market with low Medicare Advantage penetration today. Uh, why don't I just want to stay fee-for-service? I mean, why would I even want to consider becoming a direct contracting entity? 
you know, I mean, it just seems like that's going to be quite a journey. Um, you know, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so there is that that um, balancing of tiptoeing in a value-based care and losing your shirt and then losing all of the folks around you's interest in driving towards that goal. There are ways to do that tiptoeing that is effective rather than just stalling. And so there, you know, we talk about folks that really look to leverage the hedge of upside only for, you know, a decade. And that's not a, an effective strategy because CMS has, you know, the, that slow progression came with a lot of lessons learned. How do we get folks into downside faster? integrate quality measures into influencing improvement of beneficiary outcomes. And uh, it's just not a sustainable strategy for saying elsewhere anymore. And I'll tell you why, because the, what from those lessons learned, they've influenced some several pieces of legislation to drive people to downside faster than ever before. Folks might remember the macro legislation of 2016. That was, um, looked at by different stakeholders as a burden or a driver that was more progressive than it could have been for its time. I look at it as the right catalyst to get folks moving in the right direction of managing quality. Uh, so that was one that created a lot of burden for folks, no doubt. And I agree that it had some complexities and they've really worked to influ influence it. So macro legislation led to this development of the quality payment program which is this involves the merit-based incentive program and the alternative pay payment model, therefore discussed as MIPS and APMs. And so that influence is, was designed to put folks in MIPS on a bell curve um, to ensure that we're moving collectively the, the U.S. healthcare system in a direction of more, better quality care um, by um, establishing a set of measures for performance on an annual basis that um, providers, namely physicians, would um, report quality and ensure that they're managing it appropriately. Now, those that got on the trajectory of these ACOs that we talked about, Eric, they got on the trajectory of being on a being in a risk-bearing organization, two-sided risk. They could participate in these advanced alternative APMs and have the opportunity of earning a five percent Part B bonus. Why I'm giving you these technical specifics is that nuance of behavioral interest in driving towards a program that is national. St. Elsewhere can't sit around and say, I'm gonna let my, re my revenue drivers and physicians fall by the wayside. We need to create programs that essentially help the burden of reporting this type of stuff, integrating them into a profile that we know CMS is pushing us to be accountable. Okay, we need to take on some level of accountability with them because they might not be capitalized to drive that um, behavioral and economic design that can be sustainable against the national bell curve. So one, need to help their physicians. Two, the pressures of inpatient and outpatient have substantially accelerated over the last 10 years. I think you go to any association meeting the last 10 years, you, you might have heard that 100 million times. How many times, Eric? <laughs> it's a theme. Yeah. So the shift changed, right? So that has long been, you know, when we talk about site-based neutrality and all that kind of stuff that, you know, toying with the fee-for-service strategy of getting people uh, to be paid on an outpatient basis. It, it's not necessarily, we could talk about fee-for-service strategies all day, service line strategies. I'm good with it. We, that, that still exists today, and it's still important to a minor degree. But when we start thinking about saying elsewhere, even in a, um, monop a monopoly market where the only game in town, that pressure of insurance company and Medicare influence on how they get paid today in addition to that shift from inpatient to outpatient is unsustainable. And if they haven't seen it now, I don't, I, I don't have the stats in front of me, but hospital closures, even in those singular markets, continue. And that community suffers the folks that are trying to create value in that community by driving into social determinants for that community, it, it's suffering because of strategic change to drive and at least attempt to balance what's going on in national U.S. healthcare. It, it's a shame. So at Lumeris, we encourage folks to 
at least attempt to go in that direction. And um, with our supporting tools, we, we look to drive them in that direction strategically and operationally. So as head of saying elsewhere, you know, I appreciate the vision. Where does Lumera start? How do you, how do you kick this thing off uh, without getting everyone extremely upset that you're basically destroying uh, their entire vision for, for how healthcare works? Well, you start with trying to understand where you're, you, everybody does a strategic plan of five to 10 years, but um, what does your community need in the long term? Is it going to be influenced by new physicians coming to town, um, or sorry, new physician um, private equity-backed aggregators coming to town to create influence and potentially lower that cost of care? You need to fully understand your environment first. What is what is what are the major trends that are influencing provider influence? What are the beneficiary and member um, consumer behaviors, and where are they finding interest in? Do they like getting that access like they like getting everything else access? Do they enjoy um, physician to physician traditional relationships? Do they do the hospital system fully have? a community board that's supportive of moving to um, a system where it's not necessarily driven on volume. And so you have to look at these community systems as they're not for profits. They serve the community. They want to serve the community long term. But at the at the stage that they're at, they might not necessarily have the toolkits to just flip their business model overnight. So with what we try to do early on is understand where are there payers uh, of influence that would look to partner with them to transition their model. Um, naturally, it is of the payer's best interest to manage their MCR. But at the same time, they realize that provider won't get, they, they can't serve members in that community if they don't have a sustainable partner in a health system to survive. So as partners of the health system, Lumeris tries to understand what is a collaborative payer and what can they do to support that transition of moving to value. In addition, we'd like to understand what is the local provider's current workforce and can they sustain potentially re-badging employees with similar skill sets to do managing, to manage care-like services. And so today they might be a, a floor nurse that is just really excited about, you know, managing patients and helping people get better and moving them to home to discharge. But capacity constraints in the future, Eric, well, there might not be as much capacity in a value-based care model. That strategy of building new bed towers might not work out for that hospital CFO. And so what can you do so folks don't feel threatened that my job um, is going to get eliminated? No, we try to look for ways to get them um, educated in the new ways of moving them to a risk-based model. That inpatient nurse could certainly become, work towards a outpatient care manager, which that type of role is incredibly attractive to this new age in healthcare. Not necessarily has to be a care manager, which traditional care management is built on managing the top 5% sickest what we are really looking for in outpatient care management, or uh, if we can even change the word to nurses that are helping people out in the community, these folks are to keep people healthy. And we focus on not just the five per, top 5%, but the healthy and the moving to rising risk as a percent of the py uh, pyramid. Because if folks are in your community are exposed to things that are gonna, environmental things that are gonna drive them to grow in their chronic illnesses, faster than the rest of the U.S., we need to focus those um, inpatient nurses who are now outpatient care managers' attention on how to address those chronic care issues. And if you look around that investment in digital health and uh, where private equity is investing their capital today, they're investing in preventative. They're investing in how do we change the venues of care? How do we change how we communicate with providers? How do we make things more consumer-centric? So where we try to apply many of the trends and investments is to how do we fuel the health system to redesign their thinking on how to get how to 
offer access points to their community at an, at an appropriate cost that doesn't break the bank for their hospital CFO. So it's a slower transition, Eric, than I think we all want it to be. But we think that these health systems are the centers of the community and they should not be disrupted. But bear in mind, Eric, they can be. And we, we do not want them to. And I, I think that's um, a very important thing that we want our partners to be thinking about constantly. So you put more weight, you know, the old saw about healthcare is about cost, quality, and access. You put a lot of weight on the access piece. Big time. Big time. Um, I heard you discuss a number of different actors in healthcare. One that I would like to touch on a little bit is uh, the medical staff itself. Obviously, a lot of times those doctors historically have been independent. That's changing. Um, how, how do you approach them in this process? Well, they're, they're our partners. They, just like anybody on the medical staff and um, employees of the hospital, everybody has to participate in this change uh, to moving their percentage of revenue to a risk-based model. And incentives for them, the medical staff, aren't necessarily changed and ready to move to that direction. They might be still incentivized on length of stay reduction, strictly on the basis if they're, let's say, a hospitalist, or you know the local um, ED physician is looking to reduce wait times. So churning, having a relationship to try to figure out, does this patient in the ED really need to be admitted? In a matter of in what we're doing in COVID, they've our providers have been um, tremendous in helping the US healthcare system and and they are not the problem. It is a matter of many of the incentives that they're given in the system today that is driving behaviors that basically continue to proliferate bad outcomes. And so I think about that maybe not, not necessarily poor outcomes on patient quality, but outcomes on the basis of you know, they didn't get the most attention that they probably could have had at that point in setting of care because volume-based churn encourages faster times with folks. There's not enough time to focus on, does that person really need to be admitted versus an observation? Does that person really need to be here for a couple days uh, versus being, you know, could be at a more appropriate post-acute setting of care? So I think where we're at with right setting of care these medical staffs are starting to recognize, I can do all the great things I want to do if I'm given the right incentives to do so. Now, they're not necessarily only fueled by financial incentives. They're fueled by quality of care. How do they, how do they come out with the right diagnosis, with the right case review and the right outcome in the long term? They're very focused on the patients. It's just when you're churning and you're doing all that burnt and you're burnt out and you're doing all this work, you might get into that muscle memory zone of I'm just following what my protocols tell me to do and what I'm driving towards. So we need our partners and medical staff and physician leadership to be a huge part of the redesign. They are the peer-to-peer -peer communicators. They are the subject matter experts. They are the folks that know the everything there is to know about driving outcomes. But with the partnership of an aligned um, set of incentives aligned set of protocols that are influenced from the top down. The CEO, the CFO, the CMO has to push this along as this is something we're investing in and we're going to drive forward. And the medical staff is bought in around that. That's when you have the powerful uh, change to make that investment and drive forward. So you said something rather interesting that I want to just tease out a little further. Implicitly in what you were saying, you were discussing specialty specific incentives. Mm -hmm. Now, if I go back in my time capsule a number of years ago, it was more um, people were scored based upon the totality of the medical staff. There was not uh, as much emphasis. And there was a sense that it would be unfair to kind of single out various specialties and have different metrics. And it sounds to me like that has definitely changed. And at least at Lumeris, you're approaching things um, much more customized to the to the physician you're dealing with. Uh, is that the case, and, and how is that working? How's that being received? Absolutely. So I, I I would say Lumeris has a 
tremendous background in primary care. We're built off of uh, a primary care model and a group of physicians that were frustrated with the status quo. For those who are familiar with Lumeris, um, our sister company in Essence Healthcare was born out of a group of physicians in St. Louis that were frustrated with their local payer and um, needed to find a new way to coordinate primary care services in an effective way. So what they came out with, Essence being a tremendously successful Medicare Advantage company, it also scaled to a company that is a healthcare operator in Lumeris. Our DNA is built on primary care and their, its influence in managing and appropriately coordinating population health. As we start to drive what you just described as multiple physician-based incentives, it's, it's not necessarily a, you can't isolate to being a primary care-only strategy, you can't. There's too many players in healthcare, uh, albeit the primary care physician is the quarterback. The specialist has to be involved in the engagement and has to be given appropriate coordination opportunity as being another member of the care team. And so we do apply both primary care specialists and apply hospital and post-acute based programs that essentially looks to engage the full care continuum. The way a primary care physician is um, quality and cost motivated is different from a specialist. That's why, for example, CMS very particularly went after two sides of the coin with a bundles-based program and, a, and an ACO-based program. Specialists were driven to bundles and managing the episodes that they had control over. And likewise, primary care providers looked to tackle them to be the quarterback of managing the total cost of care and the downstream systems. Now, they can function together. We work together quite a bit with specialists to do bundles in combination with ACOs because it is a two-pronged strategy to bring down the total cost of care and coordinate them throughout the network. But it's not necessarily built on the same motivations or how do I get, uh, get through my day effectively. So uh, I mentioned hospital-based providers. That, that's uh, another way you need to be thinking about how do you coordinate them once the patients get to the hospital? How do you manage them through their acute episode um, in the most appropriate way? Another one in the post-acute setting, you know, there's post-acute SNFs, for example, they're incentivized to maximize days on the basis of how they're paid. So what are the medically appropriate days that they should be at, and how can a post-acute network influence the right quality of care to be discharged at the right level, and then not be readmitted into a churn of being at the same SNF over and over and over again? So there is a fundamental problem in the care coordination industry, Eric, and that influence in how folks get paid is, 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 is not the end-all be-all, but it is the catalyst. Right now, I'm sitting at St. Elsewhere. We're ending 2021. COVID is still rattling around. Maybe my system isn't doing as well as it could because I couldn't do elective procedures. COVID really hurt revenues. You know, a lot of systems now, um, at least that I've been talking to, are, are feeling some financial strain. What does 2022 hold for me without either one of us predicting where COVID is going necessarily? Yeah, we, we talk about the, the major influences of catalysts. Virtual health was one I mentioned, but also catalysts to move value in the right direction is value-based models encourages management of populations and cash flow issues have been a tremendous issue of provider groups insurance independent groups are closing left and right or they're finding suitors in their local markets that ha are cash rich so when in this vulnerable position health systems could be actually looking as an opportunity to manage pm pm or capitated risk that sustains cash flows and by the way, you know, if you look at the success of insurance companies during this time of lower utilization and elective cases not being proliferating, there's an opportunity to essentially be a part of that, that premium share rather than just having to be reactive and be the public health support. So I'm not necessarily saying that this is a time to, to be 
taking advantage of the opportunity the insurance companies are taking, but it is an opportunity to not be just price takers and be able to participate in the cash flow and be able to be actively engaged in managing the full continuum of care that these patients that are now could be post-COVID full of chronic conditions or pulmonary conditions that are going to need to be managed. And health systems as the center of the community, Eric, and the providers that are participating in partnership with that have to be fully coordinated post-pandemic, have to be. And if they have the right incentives and financial alignment, even all the better. If we're back to let's just be participants in the volume-based churn on deferred cases and everything like that, it's a short-sighted strategy. It's a strategy, but it's short-sighted because what's going to happen at the next pandemic? Or what's going to happen if our community is completely changed because disruptors have come in, they've changed the referral pattern, they're continually looking to draw down the acuity site level, moving folks to home-based hospital at home, have we heard of it? Major, major new program um, has existed for some time in concept, but companies are heavily focused on how do we manage um, patients at the site of care closer to home that's more comfortable, more consumer friendly, not necessarily uh, um, in areas that can get folks sicker and hospital-based acquired infections. So the paradigm has changed coming out of COVID, both strategically, financially, and operationally. And so this isn't an opportunity to just, let's just go back to where a previous cost-sharing strategy was, on trying to make money on, on commercial, commercial margin supplemented by Medicaid and Medicare losses. It's not sustainable chief strategy officer approach. Um, our partners that we've worked with in this space, Eric, are the have been incredibly progressive. They've been willing to take that, been major public health supporters to their communities, which COVID requires them to, while being able to be financially sustainable. And um, I'm incredibly proud of our partners being a part of that. And you know, those are our healthcare heroes, regardless if you're participating in, your situa in this situation. But I would just caution folks, take a look at what's happened around you the last two years. The physicians are changing their position. The market and consumer has changed their view of healthcare. The cost and growing cost of employer-based insurance is making employers very um, sensitive and focused on how do we get our employees to be appropriately getting the, the care that they deserve at the cost price point that they want. Transparency on pricing is changing. It's going to be a different environment. Strategy, strategy needs to change. Well, I have to give it to you. You're, you're one of the few people who works a lot with health systems who views payers as potential partners. Um, you know, customarily, that's a pretty adversarial relationship. Mm -hmm. So I want to turn to another one, especially if I'm an avid reader of modern healthcare. Um, I'm going to view private equity as pretty much being the enemy. Where do you see private equity playing with these health systems? I think we can't ignore it anymore. You can't. There are a number of new actors. Um, if I'm a health system, you know, do I view them as, as potential partners? Are they an adversary? Do I have to change my strategy to prevent them from coming in? Uh, what, what do I do with them? That's a great question, Eric. Uh, so without speaking names of specific companies, um, I could talk about business models. There is a host of private equity-backed companies that have entered the space, in addition to some venture, venture capital, that are focused on entering markets and working in, in partnership uh, with health systems and local providers at first. But bear in mind, their, their intent is to lower the total cost of care, which is a good thing for the patient and for everyone else. But the health system is the one that will suffer the most, given they have very expensive hospital and, and sometimes post-acute assets on their balance sheet. That necessarily isn't a problem if you're not a health system that's carrying all those very expensive assets. The community's always going to need that support from an acute perspective, and they're always going to need post-acute settings. Now, will the venues change, and does the capacity require as much as it is today? Probably not. 
And so some of these companies are making the bet that if they can align physicians and appropriate incentives and coordinate care because they're the most trusted partner of the patient in the community, the physician, they have the NPS scores that are well and above insurance companies and health systems. They trust that relationship to guide them to the right setting of care. So if you're a health system that is looking at these private equity companies as full-time partners, there are some that are. It's okay. There are some that are fully uh, built around trying to reduce the total cost of care and box out the health system. I wouldn't say it's as adversarial as sometimes I'm saying it <laughs> on the basis of I'm going to enter and I'm going to cut your referral and you're going to be the price taker to me now. Well, it's not far off. There is a point where health systems have to pay attention to what, how their physician CIN is being managed today and what are the, if they don't have a CIN, that's something they need to be focused on already. It, it's kind of a term of let's, the past. Let's define CIN for the audience here. Sure, it's a clinically integrated network. So um, there's many different governance structures to do that. Um, um, you and I are both familiar with advocates, physician hospital organizations. Um, that's a model of governance that essentially aligns um, both uh, physicians and hospitals in a structure to essentially take contracting and MSO managed care like services and care management services to apply to their their local communities there's other governance organizations like i mentioned the clinically integrated network organization which allows you to coordinate care in a network and be able to be a federal trade commission approved entity to negotiate um, on the behalf of providers and that creates some strength in managing quality in the, in the network and actually take a more collective approach to applying value-based care incentives in the community. Now, the way people are using those today is mostly based on fee-for-service strategy containment. How can I keep my relationships in their prime position to continue to create a path of referral to my health system? Now, not, that necessarily isn't the finest strategy when you are trying to manage the total cost of care in a very expensive, um, risky contract. So a, a different approach when you're creating those CINs and what we call a population health services organization, which is another governance organization that essentially rebrands the CIN and PHO into an incentives-based company with all of the soup to nuts of services to help provide that seamless experience for the physician. So they're not managing one quality measure here, one quality measure there on a, on a given contract, given multiple contracts. So I, I go back to you're preparing your clinically integrated network to combat the entrance of a PE physician-based aggregator. Okay, so what is the value proposition you need to keep asking yourselves to your physicians? Are you simply providing them the ability to get a great malpractice premium rate are you around to provide, lower the burden of MIP supporting, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast? Are you improving their quality of life? Are you motivating the churn versus trying to get them to bring the joy back to medicine of, I could spend as much time with my patients. Can I drive them to the, the right preventative services? Do I feel like I'm coordinating the care effectively? That not necessarily is always the case in existing networks in a given community. So what does that mean to you looking at these folks that are coming in, at offering them new services, offering them new tools to manage their network, virtual tools, offering them more surplus than they ever before? I can make you rich. Some can, but are they offering the same value proposition to coordinate with your community and effectively drive what they love to do and bringing the joy back to medicine. And I think that's what we try to do in developing these PHSOs to not only align the network appropriately, but create that level of um, community for the physicians and their members that it's not necessarily someone that's coming in with a new bright and shiny object. It is something that is a sustainable business model where one, it creates that barrier to entry for many of these folks that could eventually take the reins and move people out of those settings. If I was the chief strategy officer of St. Elsewhere, I would be thinking heavily about what that influence 
those local partners are coming in to create. What is their interests? What is their business model? How are they thinking about changing my care coordination? And what can I do to either partner or many times compete with the value propositions in the market? But think very closely about how, what value proposition you're bringing to your physicians and non-physician providers. Well, that's an interesting point because one thing I've noticed is, is a decent number of the PE players in the market discuss the fact that they're single specialty focused uh, and we're all about making life easier for you. And their sales pitch, to be quite honest, sometimes is look at how this health system has treated you. You know, do you want this to continue? Because you're just an afterthought to them. All they care is that you get your patients uh, in for surgery. You know, are you saying that, that you help shift that culture if it's necessary? I, I do think also, frankly, every health system almost thinks they're physician friendly. And if you consult with their medical staff, there's often a, a, a different perception there. I'm not going to try to just say that this is not good not something that needs to be fixed. It's There are strained relationships with the health system, with their local payer. Physicians, um, depending on the, the environment, might come in with a situation where relationships have to be repaired. What I'm saying is it's not too late. So folks might have gotten frustrated with the status quo and how relationships are built today, but the local health system has to repair them where this is going to grow in, you know, this is where the value proposition these folks are coming in with. And I, I don't, I can't blame them. So what I'm saying is you need to address the problem head on. So let's take a quick look at 2022. What are your predictions? So let's just say if, aside from my prediction on COVID, we can, we think that virtual is going to continue to grow. Folks are already putting in the, the necessary infrastructure to coordinate them in settings, getting them into mental health visits if they're struggling with that, getting them into PCP and other points of office visits, no matter how vulnerable you are of, a, of an individual. So that will create connection points to the settings of care that require in-person visits. It's already happening, but it's a matter of, do they need to get enrolled in the right chronic care program now what are some of the alternatives to surgery that you might have been moving to cut in previous where you can move them to maintaining their health, either in an independent setting or necessarily may not need the surgery at all? So I, I've seen a lot of great work with my physician colleagues thinking of the right medical programs to advance healthcare, and not necessarily inpatient setting, but there's still going to be that type of volume. In terms of chronic condition management, Folks are setting up the right disease management programs. There's a lot of programs out there in the, in the industry, right? There's been a significant investment in digital to address the diabetics, the CHF, uh, the kidney disease. I've seen tons of kidney disease companies that aren't necessarily uh, DaVita and Fresenius. And those folks are managing the parts of the, the industry in chronics and multi-chronic illness individuals that need those um, access to services that may not be their traditional partners in care. But if I say to my relatives, is if you don't have an internist or primary care physician, those are your quarterbacks. You need to see one. It's not just seeing, you know, if you're a, a woman of childbearing age, seeing your gynecologist. You really need to see your internist to be that quarterback of care. And it doesn't even necessarily have to be in an HMO, Eric. You could be seeing that person and occasionally and going to see the specialist. You don't need a gatekeeper to go to your PCP. But that is the, the group that essentially is going to say you need to change your lifestyle. And there's alternative PCPs too, which I, I really am encouraging to, as long as you're getting the right controller of your network, it's um, key to maneuvering that. So I think PCPs um, hopefully are growing in the medical, in the community that, that trains physicians uh, as being a more appealing financially since value-based care is driving much of that growth in, in average compensation. So I, I, that's not necessarily a prediction, but rather a hope. I'm seeing also this growth in employer-based uh, commercial self-insured uh, management of the populations. I know one of your previous guests 
did an excellent job describing that market, so I won't try to repeat it. But it is a huge opportunity because self-insured employers are, are frustrated and they should be. And so health systems that take advantage of those direct-to-employer relationships are going to be much more advantageous in their local market, market and regionally, especially if you're a regional-based health system, to take advantage of the opportunity to partner with physicians and local employers. And then lastly, pay attention to, to policy. This is going to be a pivotal year for Liz Fowler and the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation and uh, Administrator Brooks LaSure of CMS to take the next decade of value-based programs overseeing Medicare and supercharge them for the next decade thereafter as being a major influence in program design, influence in the communities of educating beneficiaries that this isn't necessarily a program that's going to be limiting them, but actually helping them manage their care and um, drive healthier behaviors. It's a supplement. And we'll see obviously changes in the Medicare Advantage and Medicare supplement business. Medicare Advantage is growing at a rapid clip of percent of penetration, but there will always be Medicare fee for service. So we need to make sure that both sides of the Medicare eligibles um, have the appropriate access points and are driving the right outcomes because we taxpayers today might not see a Medicare program if it's not paid attention to. Well, Rick, uh, that's all I got. Um, thanks for coming on. I appreciate you taking the time. Eric, thanks for having me. And a uh, pleasure to talk to you today and uh, look forward to staying in touch. Excellent.